Chapter Two, Part One of the Tree of Apomatox. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Natalie Paula. The Tree of Apomatox by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter Two: The Woman at the House, Part One. The men marched on for a long time, and, after a while, they heard the hum of many voices and the restless movements that betokened the presence of numerous troops. Dick, who had dismounted, walked forward a little distance with Colonel Winchester, and in the moonlight he was able to see that a large division of the army was gathered near, resting on its arms. It was obvious that the important movement of which he had been hearing so much was at hand, but the Colonel volunteered nothing concerning its nature. The troops were allowed to lie down, and, with the calmness that comes of long experience, they soon fell asleep. But the officers waited and watched. Dick saw the other regiments arriving. Warner, who had pushed through some bushes, came back and said in a whisper, "'I've seen half a dozen great mounds of fresh earth.' "'Earth taken out to make a trench, no doubt,' said Dick. But Warner shook his head. "'There's too much of it,' he said, "'and it's been carried too far to the rear.' In my opinion, extensive mining operations have been going on here. For what? asked Pennington. Not for silver or gold. We're no treasure hunters. Besides, there's none here. Warner shook his head again. I don't know, he replied, but I'm quite sure it, that it has something to do, perhaps all to do, with the movement now at hand. To the right of us regiments, including several of colored troops, are already forming in the line of battle. I have no doubt our turn will come before long. We must be intending to make an attack, said Dick. I don't suppose we'll move until day. He had learned long since that night attacks were very risky. Friend was likely to fire into friend, and the dusk and confusion invariably forbade victory. But the faculties that create anxiety and alarm had been dulled for the time by immense exertions and dangers, and he placidly waited the event, whatever it might be. What time is it? asked Pennington. Half past three in the morning, replied Dick, who was able to see the face of his watch. Not such a long wait, then. Day comes early this time of the year. You lads can sit down and make yourself comfortable, said Colonel Winchester. It's desirable for you to be as fresh as possible when you're wanted. I'm glad to see the men sleeping. They'll receive a signal in ample time. The young officers followed his suggestion, but they kept very wide awake, talking for a while in whispers and then sinking away into silence. The noise from the massed troops near them decreased also, and Dick's curiosity began to grow again. He stood up, but he saw no movement, nothing to indicate the nature of any coming event. He looked at his watch again. Dawn was almost at hand. A narrow band of gray would soon rim the eastern hills. An aide arrived, gave a dispatch to Colonel Winchester, and quickly passed on. The men were awakened and stood up, shaking the sleep from their eyes, and then, through habit, looking to their arms and ammunition. The thread of gray showed in the east. "'Whatever it is, it will come soon,' whispered Warner to Dick. The gray thread broadened and became a ribbon of silver. The silver, as it widened, was shot through with pink and red and yellow, the colors of the morning. Dick caught a glimpse of mass bayonets near him, and of southern trenches rising slowly out of the dusk not far away. Then the earth rocked. He felt sudden, violent, and convulsive movement that nearly threw him from his feet and the whole world in front of him blazed with fire, as if a volcano, after a long silence, had burst suddenly into furious activity. Black objects, the bodies of men, were borne upon the mass of shooting flames, and the roar was so tremendous that it was heard thirty miles away. 
Dick had been expecting something, but no such red dawn as this, and when the fire suddenly sank, and the world-shaking crash turned to echoes, he stood for a few moments appalled. He believed at first that a magazine had exploded, but as the dawn was rapidly advancing, he beheld in front of them, where southern breastworks had stood, a vast pit two or three hundred feet long and more than thirty feet deep. At the bottom of it, although they could not be seen through the smoke, lay the fragments of Confederate cannon and Confederate soldiers who had been blown to pieces. "'A mine breaking the rebel line?' cried Warner. "'And our men are to charge through it?' Trumpets were already sounding their thrilling call, and blue masses, before the smoke had lifted, were rushing into the pit, intending to climb the far side and sever the southern line. But Colonel Winchester did not yet give word to his own regiment, and Dick knew they were to be held in reserve. Into the great chasm went white troops and black troops, charging together, and then Dick suddenly cried in horror. Those were veterans on the other side, and recovering quickly from the surprise, they rushed forward their batteries and riflemen. Mahone, a little alert man, commanded them. In an instant they deluged the pit, afterwards famous under the name of the crater, with fire. The steep slope held back the Union troops, and from the edges everywhere the men in gray poured a storm of shrapnel and canister and bullets into the packed masses. Colonel Winchester groaned aloud, and looked at his men who were eager to advance to the rescue, but it was evident to Dick that his orders held him, and they stood in silence gazing at the appalling scene in the crater. A tunnel had been run directly under the Confederates, and then a huge mine had been exploded. All that part was successful, but the Union Army had made a deep pit more formidable than the earthwork itself. Never had men created a more terrible trap for themselves. The name, the crater, was well deserved. It was a seething pit of death filled with smoke, and from which came shouts and cries as the rim of it blazed with the fire of those who were pouring in such a stream of metal. Inside the pit men could only cower low in the hope that the hurricane of missiles would pass over their heads. "'Good God!' cried Dick. "'Why don't we advance to help them?' "'Here we go now, and we may need help ourselves,' said Warner. Again the trumpets were sending forth their shrill call to battle and death, and, as the colonel waved his sword, the regiment charged forward with others to rescue the men in the crater. A bright sun was shining now, and the southern leaders saw the heavy advancing column. They were rapidly bringing up more guns and more riflemen, and shifting a part of their fire. A storm of death blew in the faces of those who would go to the rescue. As at Cold Harbor the men in blue could not live before such a fire at close quarters, and the regiments were compelled to recoil, while those who were left alive in the crater surrendered. The trumpets sounded the unwilling call to withdraw, and the Winchester men, many of them shedding tears of grief and rage, fell back to their old place while from some distant point rising above the dying fire of the cannon and rifles came a long fierce rebel yell full of defiance and triumph the effect upon dick of the sight of the crater was so overwhelming that he was compelled to lie down why do we do such things he exclaimed after the faintness passed why do we waste so many lives in such vain efforts we have to try replied warner gloomily the thing was all right as far as it went, but it broke against the hedge of fire and steel, crowning a barrier that we had created for ourselves. "'Let's not talk about it,' said Pennington, who had been faint too. "'It's enough to have seen it. I'm going to blot it out of my head if I can.' But not one of the three was ever able to wholly forget that hideous dawn. Luckily the Winchesters themselves had suffered little, but they were quite content to remain in their old place by the brook. 
where the next day a large man in civilian dress introduced himself to dick perhaps you don't remember me mr mason he said but in such times as these it's easy to forget chance acquaintances dick looked at him closely he was elderly with heavy pouches under his eyes and a rotund figure but he looked uncomfortably alert and his pale blue eyes had a penetrating quality then dick recalled him you're mr watson the contractor he said right shake hands dick shook his hands and he noticed that while it was fat it was strong and dry he hated damp hands which always seemed to have a slimy touch as if their owner were reptilian i suppose business is good with you mr watson he said it couldn't be better and such affairs as the one i witnessed this morning mean more but doubtless i have grieved over it as much as you i may profit by the great struggle but i have not wished either the war or its continuance someone must do the work i'm doing you're a brave boy lieutenant mason i want you to still bear in mind the hint i gave you once in washington i don't recall it this instant that to go into business with me is better trade than fighting i thank you for the offer but my mind turns in other directions i'm not depreciating your occupation mr watson but i'm interested in something else i knew that you were not lieutenant mason you have too much sense your kind could not fight if my kind did not find the sinews and after the war the woods will be full of generals and colonels and majors who will be glad to get jobs from men like me i've no doubt of it said dick but what happened this morning made me think the war is yet far from over we shall see what we shall see but if you ever want a friend write to me in washington general delivery there will do good-bye good-bye said dick as he watched the big man walk away he felt that he was beginning to understand him he had never been interested greatly in mercantile pursuits public and literary life and the soil were great things to him now he realized that the vast strength of the north a strength that could survive any number of defeats lay largely in her trade and commerce the south almost stationary upon the soil had fallen behind and no amount of skill and courage could save her colonel winchester gave the young officers who had been awake all night permission to sleep and dick was glad to avail himself of it he still felt weak and ill and with a tender smile remembering his mother's advice about the blanket he spread one in the shade of a small oak and lay down upon it despite the terrible repulse of the morning most of the men had regained their usual spirits several were playing accordions and others were listening the winchesters were known as a happy regiment because they had an able colonel strong but firm efficient and tactful minor officers they seldom got into mischief and always pooled their resources one lad was reading now to a group from a tattered copy of les miserables which had just reached them he was deep in waterloo and dick heard their comments you wait till the big writers begin to tell about chickamauga and gettysburg and shiloh said one they'll class with waterloo or ahead of it and the french and english never fought such campaign as that when grant came down through the wilderness what's that about the french riding into the sunken road i'm willing to bet it was nothing but a skirmish beside pickett's charge at gettysburg and both failed said warner there are always brave men on every side in any war i don't know whether napoleon was right or wrong i suppose he was wrong at the time but it always makes me feel sad to read of waterloo just as a lot of our own people were grieved at the death of stonewall jackson although next to lee he was our most dangerous foe said pennington the reader resumed and although he was interrupted from time to time by question or comment his monotone was pleasant and soothing and dick fell asleep when he awoke his nerves were restored and he could think of the crater without becoming faint again that night colonel hartford of the cavalry came to their camp and talked with colonel winchester in the presence of dick and his comrades of the staff 
The disastrous failure of the morning, so the cavalrymen said, had convinced all the generals that Lee's trenches could not be forced, and the commander-in-chief was turning his eye elsewhere. While the deadlock before Petersburg lasted, he would push the operations in some other field. He was watching especially the Valley of Virginia, where early after his daring raid upon the outskirts of Washington was being pursued by Sheridan, though not hard enough in the opinion of General Grant. It's almost decided that help will be sent to Sheridan, said Hertford, and in that event my regiment is sure to go. Yours has served as a mounted regiment, and I think I have influence enough to see it is sent again as cavalry, if you wish. Colonel Winchester accepted the offer gladly, and his young officers in all eagerness seconded him. They were tired of inactivity and of the cramped and painful life in the trenches. To be on horseback again, riding over hills and across valleys, seemed almost heaven to them, and, as Colonel Hartford walked away, earnest injunctions to use its influence to the utmost followed him. "'It will take the sight of the crater from my mind,' said Warner. "'That's one reason why I want to go.' Dick, searching his own mind, concluded that it was a chief reason with him, although he too was eager for a more spacious life than that of the trench. "'I'm going to wish so hard for it,' said Pennington, "'that it'll come true.' Whether Pennington's wish had any effect or not, they departed two days later. Three mounted regiments, under the general command of Hertford, his right as a veteran cavalry leader, all regiments, despite new men, had been reduced greatly by years of fighting, and the three combined did not number more than fifteen hundred horse. But there was not one among them, from the oldest to the youngest, who did not feel elation as they drove away on the great curve that would take them into the valley of Virginia. "'It's glorious to be on a horse again, with the world before you,' said Pennington. I was born horseback, so to speak, and I never had to do any walking until I came to this war. The great plains and the free winds that blow all around the earth for me. But you don't have rivers and hills and forests like ours, said Dick. I know it, but I don't miss them. I suppose it's what you're used to that you're like. I like a horizon that doesn't touch the ground anywhere within fifteen or eighteen miles of me. And think of seeing a buffalo herd as I have, that's all day passing you, a million of em, maybe and think of being scalped by the Sioux or Cheyenne, as your people out there often are, said Warner. Pennington took off his cap and disclosed an uncommonly thick head of hair. You see that I haven't lost mine yet, he said. If a fellow can live through big battles as I've lived through em, he can escape Sioux and Cheyenne. So you should. Look back now and you can see the armies face to face. They were on the highest hill, and all the cavalry had turned for a last glance. Dick saw again the flashes from an occasional rifle fire, and the dark column of smoke still rising from a spot which he knew to be the crater. He shuddered and was glad when the force riding on again passed over the hill. Before them stretched a desolated country, trodden underfoot by armies, and his heart bled again for Virginia, the most reluctant of all states to secede, and the greatest of them all to suffer. Colonel Hertford, Colonel Winchester, and the Colonel of the 3rd Regiment, a Pennsylvanian named Bedford, rode together, and their young officers were just behind, all examined the country continually through glasses to guard against ambush. Stuart was gone and Forrest was far away, but they knew the danger from the fierce riders of the south was always present. Just when the capital seemed safest, Early's men had appeared in its very suburbs, and here in Virginia, where the hand of every man and of every woman and child also was against them, it was wise to watch well. As they rode on, the country was still marked by desolation. The fields were swept bare or trampled down. Many of the houses and barns and all the fences had been burned. The roads had been torn up by the passage of artillery and countless wagons. All the people seemed to have gone away. 
but when they came into rougher and more wooded regions they were shot at often by concealed marksmen a half a dozen troopers were killed and more wounded and when the cavalrymen forced a path through the brush in pursuit of the hidden sharpshooters they found nothing the enemy fairly melted away it was easy enough for a rifleman knowing every gully and thicket to send his deadly bullet and then escape although it's merely the buzzing and singing of wasps said warner i don't like it they can't stop our advance but i hate to see any good fellow of ours tumbled from his horse makes one think of that other ride we took in mississippi said dick in one way yes but in others no this is hard firm ground and we're not persecuted by mosquitoes nor is this country suitable for an ambush by a great force ouch that burnt a bullet fired from the thicket had grazed warner's bridle hand dick was compelled to laugh you're free from mosquitoes george he said but there are still little bullets flying about as you see a dozen cavalrymen were sent into the thicket but the sharpshooter was already far away colonel herford frowned and said well i suppose it's the price we have to pay but i like to see the people to whom we have to pay it not much chance of that said colonel winchester the virginians know their own ground and the lurking sharpshooters won't fire until they're sure of a safe retreat but as they advanced the stinging fire became worse there was no southern force in this part of the country strong enough to meet them in open combat but there was forest and thicket sufficient to shelter many men who were not only willing to shoot but knew how to shoot as well yet they never caught anybody nor even saw anybody a stray glimpse or two of a puff of smoke was the nearest they ever came to beholding an enemy it became galling intolerable three more men were killed and the number of wounded was doubled the three colonels held a consultation and decided to extend groups of skirmishers far out on either flank dick was chosen to lead a band of thirty picked men who rode about a mile on the right and he had with him as his second and in reality as his guide and mentor in many ways the trusty sergeant whitley it was altogether likely that colonel winchester would not have sent dick unless he had been able to send the wise sergeant with him while you're guarding us from ambush he said to dick be sure you don't fall into an ambush yourself not while whitley here is with us replied dick he learned while out on the plains not only to have eyes in the back of his head but to have him in the sides of it as well in addition he can hear the fall of a leaf a mile away the sergeant shook his head and uttered an empathic no in protest but in his heart he was pleased he was the sergeant who liked being a sergeant and he was proud of all his wilderness and prairie lore dick gave the word and the little troop galloped away to the right zealous in his task and beating up every wood and thicket for the hidden riflemen who were so dangerous at intervals they saw the cavalry force riding steadily on and again they were hidden from it by forest or bush more than an hour passed and they saw no foe dick concluded that the sharpshooters had been scared off by the flanking force and that they would have no further trouble with them his spirits rose accordingly and there was much otherwise to make them rise End of chapter two part one